0: hello
1: and welcome to explain me my name is patty johnson
0: and i'm william powheida
1: well welcome back everyone it's been a it's been a while it's been about four or five months since we've done a podcast so it's definitely time to reconnect with everyone
0: yeah it's good to see you patty back (laughs) doing an episode of explain me after a very long break
1: Nice to see you, too. So a little bit of housekeeping before we start. Uh, Explain Me is now receiving additional funding from NETFIRC, membership program for artists formed over the last year by myself. NETFIRC was founded to help artists gain visibility for their practice. And William, you recently joined NETFIRC. Is that not the case? I should know, Uh, but
0: (laughs) yes, I recently started working with Patty on network as a community manager with the program to kind of, you know, bring my experience as an artist to the platform. So, yeah.
1: Yeah. So all of which is to say, explain me isn't changing, except that we're going to be able to produce the podcast more often. So we wanted to make that announcement. I also wanted to just make clear to everyone that network is a small company, like, We've currently got one full-time person working there, so it, we're not promising the mountain here, but it does have enough support to help us offer the same thing that we always have on Explain Me, which is conversation that looks at the intersection of art, money, and politics in the art world. And we'd like to thank our Patreon funders for their support over the last year. As some of longtime listeners may remember, about two years ago we did a Patreon platform, fundraiser, pledge, something or other, whatever we want to call it. And those funders really helped us get through the pandemic. And I mean that quite literally. There are times, I think, when if we didn't feel like we, without that real obligation to fulfill these needs, sometimes, like, I think these things, our podcast wouldn't have got done. Even though the podcast was, I think, really helpful during that time. For both of us, and I know for all of you. So, I wanted to thank everybody who was a funder and let you know that we're going to be discontinuing the Patreon because we have this additional support. We're all excited to return the Patreon's funders' support with more episodes and on a regular schedule. So, these are, I think, in terms of housekeeping notes, these are pretty good ones to be able to share
0: with you all. Yeah, I'm excited about this. <laughs> some some financial support with some money to discuss art politics and money.
1: Yeah. And so today we thought we would talk about the Whitney Biennial because that is an exhibition for which there is a lot of discussion. We have, I know I've seen the show twice. William, you've probably seen it a similar amount.
0: Yeah, I went twice. I made it to the opening. Our friend and artist, Claudia Pina Salinas, had extra tickets. So we were able to wait on the hour-long line oh. uh, to get into the show, which uh, was uh, we were also greeted by the new Whitney Museum Union, who were letting everyone know that they are in the process of negotiating a contract with the museum. So that was a really welcome development before I even got into the Whitney Biennial to know that their staff is unionizing, particularly after the events of the Whitney Biennial in 2019. But I will say that my experience at the opening of the Biennial, I did not see a lot of artwork. What I mostly experienced was seeing people I haven't seen in over a couple of years, a kind of joy at sort of being back at a sort of a big institutional event, and a lot of tequila. They just were pouring... (laughs) <laughs> massive cups of tequila. It seemed to be the only beverage and some white wine that they had. And uh, I will say that at one bar, we were served by like a Whitney staff member who was subbing. They just they didn't have enough caterers. They were completely overwhelmed by the number of people that showed up for the opening.
1: That's uh, that's fantastic. So, do you feel like you remember any of the events?
0: Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, it wasn't like we were just pounding tequila at the bar, but There were so many people that I feel like most of the artwork that I experienced was a backdrop for conversations of people sort of catching up. And that I think the most memorable work from the opening for me was Lucy Raven's video installation that's in a side room off the fifth floor. And our friend Claudia had done an installation in that same room and was just curious to see how the artist was dealing with it because it gets a lot of natural light. And that turned out to be one of my favorite video installations and works in the show in general which we can talk about a little bit more. But between that, a lot of the other work on the sixth floor was really hard to deal with and with the huge crowds because the sixth floor was the very sort of somber, all black, walled off spaces. And the fifth floor, was wide open. So a lot of more people were there, but it was also more crowded. So a lot of it was just sort of backdrop, uh, at least at the opening.
1: Right. And then just for everybody who hasn't been or hasn't heard that much about the biennial, there's also uh, a small installation on the first floor, which I, I believe is a film by, do you remember the artist's name?
0: In the, the main, like the side exhibition space on the first floor. Yeah, the side floor. exhibition space. Oh, that was a collaboration, I believe, between Wu Tsang and another artist who I'm not familiar with, but that was the sort of Moby Dick.
1: Moby Dick, <laughs> yes.
0: Yeah, and there's another piece in the lobby by Renee Green that's a lot of kind of flags hanging from the ceiling.
1: Right. So we had that, the stairwell piece, and then which is basically like a big tube that's kind of been painted and the work in the, edu- on the educational floor, always a great space for a party. And I think that was the, that's the second floor or is it the third floor? I can't it's remember. The
0: third third floor. floor. Yeah. And that was the Cassandra Press, you know, which was founded by Candace Williams, who also had some memorable works in the show. And Nayland Blake also has some works. Uh, Nayland has set up office hours to meet with community members to discuss problems with their practice. So there was just a sign. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> so
1: we've sort of gone over the look and feel of this exhibition, which has the main parts of it, half the top floor, which feels very heavy because it's all in black, the, the lower floor, the floor below it that has, uh, for lack of a better word, an airy art fair feel to it. Because there are all sorts of, you you end up kind of hunting for wall labels just to figure out who's made what. Not actually my favorite part of the exhibition, but I guess like sort of general impressions of the show, like what did you, what do you feel the overriding
0: message is? Well, I would, Maybe we could just start with, like, the facts. So the Whitney Bible is titled Quiet As It's Kept. And uh, according to the Whitney's website, the 80th edition of the Landmark exhibition is co-curated by David Breslin, and it's the D. Martini family curator and director of curatorial initiatives, as well as Adrian Edwards, the Engelspire family curator and director of curatorial affairs. And the show has uh, work from 63 artists and collectives. And I think the title of the show gives away a lot about the overall kind of mood of the show, which I would describe as sort of a very sort of cautious curatorial effort, particularly after the last two Whitney Biennials, which were marked by the Warren Candor's crisis and the nine weeks of protest. And before that, Dana Schütz's painting of Emmett Till that sparked, you know, sort of enormous amount of controversy that in some ways, kind of buried some of the other work that was on display. So I do think there, that is that idea that the show is a little bit cautious and not necessarily conservative, but it does feel like a Whitney that has been purposefully designed to avoid any controversy. And that extends into some of the work that certainly is present in the show. But then, you know, it does get into formally, like the way that this one is structured, So if you start at the sixth floor in that walled, dark space, which has a number of very long videos, it sets up one sort of mood or atmosphere. And then when you travel down to the fifth floor and you walk into what I feel like is like the support surface version of the show, which was like a French painting movement concerned with showing the backs of canvases and the structure Mm. bars, you know, there's this kind of openness and desire for transparency. That sets up a pretty strong binary between the kind of some of the themes within the work, which do run the gamut from very heavy histories around colonialism and legacies of prison labor, like in Coco Fusco's work, and shifts to that fifth floor space where there is Alex de Corte's, you know, sort of weird video of Duchamp handling Brancusi sculptures, and there's just a a lighter feel in that, and that sets up a kind of strong juxtaposition of kind of attitudes that I think runs through a lot of the relationships in the show, which I think there's a lot of ways to think about it, but there is a, a, one of the curatorial kind of themes that I noticed was the inclusion of a lot of forms of abstraction that do run up against the other forms of representation in the show, whether they're the videos or photography. And I think one of the things that we'll talk about more is the sort of omission of, say, Black figurative painting that has been widely shown in art galleries in New York City over the last three to five years. Um, so there, I feel like the show does set up a couple of conversations between some pretty strong binaries.
1: Yeah, and I think, like, you know, when we start talking about the omissions, we, we're kind of not the first people to uh, talk about this. Uh, Jerry Saltz talked about, named a lot of, Artists who were working, who he felt were omitted, like Amy Sherald, Micheline Thomas, Jordan Castile. and these these artists, I think, like we can talk about their omission as being, for lack of a better, like you could describe them as glaring, because like figurative work right now is really powerful and potent, and one of the reasons that black figuration is so important is because the body has become such a battleground. And so if these omissions are made, are we not talking about the things that are happening in the culture? And that's where I think the omissions in this particular show really can be a little bit more problematic than a sort of being counting of like who is in this and who is not and who should we be seeing and who shouldn't we be seeing? It's really more about like what aspects of the culture are happening right now that have representation and what aspects of the culture is is the art not touching on and are those cultural movements important and some of them i think are not as a culture it's not just museums i think as a culture we are not addressing the things that we We need to do. And I think a lot of that has to do with the lack of government support. So I guess to just sort of dive right into this, like (laughs) one of the things that I felt was really missing from the, well, there were a couple of things that I felt were missing from the biennial. One of them is Dred Scott's How to Hang an American Flag. Now, that's a very specific piece. I think it is exactly the type of work. That William, you are talking about if we if we think of the biennial as being cautious, an exclusion of that work is definitely an example of that. Now, for those of you who don't know, Dred Scott made a piece called How to Hang an American Flag. I guess that would have been in the early aughts. I can't remember now, but like it was a very controversial piece. George W. Bush was president at the time and Described it as bad art. And the reason was that uh, Dred Scott displays the American flag on the ground as something to be walked upon. And to me, something like that is really relevant right now. And I talked to Dred maybe two years ago about that particular piece. And he said that he was trying to get it shown again because he felt like it was really relevant. And there wasn't an institution to take it on. And the Whitney having gone through all of the things that it has gone through in the last four years, five years, like six years. It is now, I think, seeking to avoid that type of controversy more so than maybe it has in the past. And so that I think like there's a a real institutional reticence to show work and there are good reasons for that in the sense that like it's for many institutions it will be cost prohibitive to show a work like that it's you would need a lot of security you would need insurance that would cost just a boatload you know it would be a lightning rod for controversy so i can understand the the hesitancy for including something like that but after all of The Black Lives Matter protests, after all of what we've gone through in the past three years, like, I think we need some space to really talk about this stuff.
0: I mean, I agree. And when we talked about this a little bit before the podcast, I mean, for me, that idea of the Whitney being able to show like a radical gesture like Dred's flag, I go back to the way the Whitney itself as an institution, one responded to the Black Lives Matter protests. When the protests, when there was any sort of looting or property damage, the Whitney's response to the protest wasn't to open up their space to protesters, open up their bathrooms, allow people a place to rest. They put up the plywood barriers. And despite their statements about you know, acknowledging that they've made mistakes, that they need to increase the racial diversity in their collections and their programming and their staff, And a real commitment in a a written statement to change the structure of the museum that's contributed to so many of the controversies and protests, they just put up plywood walls and shut people out. And for me, that kind of radical gesture, I wish an artist had put those plywood walls back up and made everyone walk through to remind ourselves and the Whitney of how that institution responded to the real social conditions, what was happening in society. Um, That was how culture responded. And that obviously the Whitney is not going to do that.
1: (laughs) Well, no, because I think fundamentally, like one of the things we maybe always knew, but have like really been confronted with again and again over these last couple of years is that institutions are not space for radical activity. Like they are not a space for resistance.
0: Yeah. And I mean, that, that definitely seems to extend to the work that they allow into the space, which I do think there's very you know, strong political work in the exhibition. But some of that work is looking to the past, to sort of root causes of some of the current problems. Other work is sort of looking to the future and sort of speculating about where it's going. But I think there is a lack of work beyond, say, Alfredo Jarre's video that that really deals with the sort of present moment and whether it's the pandemic and the sort of massive loss of life or the Black Lives Matter protests and the kind of continuing social realities of police violence. I think in Minneapolis, they just released a report that the Minneapolis Police Department continues to engage in patterns of racially motivated abuse and police violence. So I think on, on one hand, and I think this is worth sort of discussing a little bit, is we do need art that sort of addresses these things, but we also really need the actual material social changes. And yes. Yeah. And I mean, there are limits to what art can accomplish. So I think that for me, I mean, that I I'm curious if you felt like the show would have benefited from the inclusion of more works that really dealt with the last two to three years.
1: Yes, absolutely. I think absolutely, without a doubt, it would have benefited because there would be more touch points. The Whitney is a museum that serves a national and international audience, but it is rooted in New York. I think New Yorkers want to see themselves reflected and their experiences in there. New York had a really, really tough time with COVID. We all did. But like in those early months, it was terrifying to live here. And there was not a lot of that there. And I think that we, there's also like, I talked to, we talked about this a little bit before the podcast, but even though I think that, and I understand that the Whitney Biennial is not the place for public art. One of the things that has been missing from the discourse discourse and public art in general has been any kind of memorial for COVID victims. And I didn't see, we had, we did have something from Coco Fusco. And I think that one of the reasons that piece was so potent and powerful is because it is a memorial. It's a memorial we needed, but we didn't see, we didn't see say like Lady Phoenix who had produced an AR experience for the Tribeca Film Festival called Brianna's Garden, which was made in collaboration with Brianna Taylor's sister and touched, was designed to to touch the hearts of people who were grieving for Taylor. So like there are a lot, there has been so many points of loss over the last three years, arguably too many to really kind of count but I think I would have liked to have seen I think like sadness communal grieving like spaces Mm -hmm. spaces where we can share how tough these last three years have been like to me that's a lot of what art is about and when that's missing it feels like art isn't talking about the experiences that we all have and it's not that there's been a lack of that work. It's that is, that's absolutely not the case.
0: Mm. Yeah. I mean, it's one of the things that I was thinking about with like the institutional perspective of the show, which yeah. I think curators have a certain amount of freedom, right? Like in terms of setting up the themes and what they want to pursue in the show, but they're still representing what the Whitney's kind of program and perspective is. And one of the things that I thought about initially when I was seeing like James Little's large-scale abstractions or Rick Lowe's large-scale abstractions based on dominoes, the game, the presence of kind of so much abstract work in the show made me think about um, the Whitney's retrospective of Julie Morettu's large-scale sort of abstract practice. And one of the things that they did during that show is they had a day-long symposium uh, called like a convening called black queer abstract. And it was around for the occasion of Julie's show. And they brought together a whole lot of experts and historians to try to provide some context related to black queer identities in these kind of histories of abstraction. And it took a day,
1: right? (laughs) You know, you
0: pointed out earlier that the power of figurative work to use and show black bodies with culture, cultural and social signifiers, in clothing, their environments, everything around them can directly communicate things in sort of clear ways about identity that is not the strength of abstraction, right? And like, so suddenly, I mean, when I was walking through the show, I felt like the curators were doing a couple of things. One, which was sort of like continuing to try to bring forward practices from Black and Indigenous artists, uh, from a range of artists whose work was first rooted in abstraction, and then connected to cultural and social uh, practices. And there's a number of artists in the show that we kind of talk about whose work participates in that language. And in what they decided to just sort of cut out, what the Whitney's program is not necessarily needing to support, as you rightly point out, are artists like Jordan Castile, who are doing quite well in the market. Like there's already a place where there's visibility, there's collectors. There's no shortage of press about it. And so I do feel like there was part of the, that program for the Whitney was to push an idea of identity-based work that is rooted in abstraction. And that is one half, right, of, like, the kind of binary. Because if on the fifth floor you have Rick Lowe's, these very, very large paintings, black and white, rooted, they're, they're based on literally the game of dominoes. And then just to the right of it are... A series of fo- photographs by, let me find the artist's name. It's the first time I've experienced the artist's work, but how, who hers series of Hmong community and their small to medium-sized scale documentary photos of the community spaced out that take up a kind of equivalent amount of space of Rick Lowe's monster painting, right? That are about, directly about, the culture in the community, and a culture that has experienced a lot of diaspora. It's been spread out, particularly because the Hmong were an indigenous people um, in Laos that supported the U.S. during the Vietnam War, and where many were sort of forced to resettle in the United States when the U.S. lost that conflict. That's not necessarily referenced in the work, but here you have this this dialectic, right, of like large-scale abstraction that is about the kind of community engagement found in the game of dominoes. And then on the other side, you have this portrait of a particular Hmong community. And those two things are sort of in dialogue with one another. But what is missing is that kind of step of kind of black figurative painting that sort of would sit between photography and an abstract painting practice that has been so, I mean, I guess so well represented in the commercial market and other major shows that you don't necessarily need it. And I do think that that sort of extends the curatorial premise of like Antoine Sargent's show, Social Works, mm-hmm. that, that could So I, I just want to point out that there is this market support for socially engaged forms of, of artwork that aren't rooted in traditions of figurative painting, because you had works by like Linda Goodbryan. And in addition to Rick Lowe, that show is trying to kind of show some other possibilities for specifically black traditions of abstraction that can take the form of paintings and sculptures and installations but that i guess you know is a sort of long way of saying though is that is the show itself is has a kind of institutional agenda that is committed to sort of more abstract ways of working on one side of the show and then supporting practices like hers photographic series but then also I think one thing I wanted to bring up or at least acknowledge is that there's like six hours of video work uh,
1: yeah, and, so, <laughs>
0: and including like Trin T. Minha's one hour and 35 minute feature that you could watch with, there's a few padded benches in the room. But I think one of the things about going to a Whitney biennial is that it can be overwhelming when they're is just the kind of like 2D and flat works that you can kind of quickly experience. But then to kind of stack on an expectation that if you're really going to experience every work of the 63 artists and collectives in the show, it would take the full day. I don't even know if you could do it from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. when the (laughs) museum's open, right? I mean, to really get it. And they're still selling tickets for one timed entry. And I think the Whitney, if they want to not make it an exhausting kind of thing is try to find some ways to encourage people to come back either through like a multi-ticket, you know, multi-entry pass or streaming some of the longer videos and making those accessible in our homes. (laughs) Particularly after the pandemic, I visited the Whitney Biennial with my friend, Jennifer Dalton, and she is still not comfortable going to a a bar to have a beer. And I, I don't think even Masked Up was feeling very comfortable in small rooms with Twenty or thirty strangers to to stay for an hour and thirty five minutes to watch a video, so it it just. I
1: mean, I want to add to that, but I mean, I was there yesterday just to to refresh what I like my memory and all the rest. And there was, I was one of the few people wearing masks because now it's not required. So so if you were feeling a little bit nervous about going to a place, a public place, and spending time there, like. The Whitney's not going to make you feel any better. It's totally optional and most people are not wearing their mask and you're going to be in enclosed in space to watch these films. Thankfully, some of them are like short, but not all of them.
0: Yeah. And I think that that was a, a question I had um, just sort of like zooming in on what this show has in it. Right. Not necessarily what is is missing, which we agree. There's some things that would have, I think, made the show sort of resonate much more strongly with our, Experiences over the last three years, but I'm sort of wondering what, what really is the criteria for like time-based media in an exhibition that you have to see it in person, right? Like if Trin Team and Haas, our 35 minute feature film, I feel like what would be the difference of seeing that at home on a television, a laptop screen, versus seeing it, experiencing it within the exhibition. I sort of know what it means to have that work in relation to the other works in the show, but you have to commit to the hour and 35 minutes to watch it to really make sense of how it might inform or change your understanding of other works around it. But I feel like I could see the Whitney Biennial, watch Trinh T. Minha's movie, and have the same experience. I don't necessarily need to do that on a padded bench with 20 strangers in the Whitney. So I was thinking more about the video installations like Candice Williams' Death of A, which is the four-channel video that takes up two corners. You really have to kind of, it splits your attention. You can't focus on it all sort of at once. And it feels, and it's 26 minutes. So you can stay for that. It is a longer ask, but you can kind of take it in, I think, in, in one viewing. And that's, that's also different than Alex de Corte's sort of, very lavishly produced video, which I still don't really understand because it was 60 minutes long. And, and sitting there. in
1: the middle of that open space. So yeah, like, it's not I'd... really inviting for you yeah. to just sit down for 60 minutes. It's actually really hard, I find.
0: And so it made me uh, sort of appreciate the installations of Raven Chacon and Namira's sort of like three and four. There's are both three channel video screens. Right. And uh, Namira has like a plexiglass screen that sort of picks up some of the projection, sort of suggesting another unseen spectator observing what's sort of happening. And
1: it's a beautiful piece, all the shadows that run over the right. over the plexiglass. It's and poetic, too, I think, with the text.
0: Right. And those videos like the Wu-Sang collaboration down on the first floor are there for a reason. You to they would be very different experiences to try to Take in just on a screen, but the single channel works by like Adam Pendleton. That his documentary is an hour long as well. I mean, so these were works that I felt a bit guilty about, like not staying for. But I wasn't going to ask Jen <laughs> to stay, and we just didn't have that much time. I, we got you don't. I mean, and committed. We had like two and a half hours to see what we could. So we had to make these decisions of you know, how much of this can we pick up. And get from say seeing part of something like like Dave McKenzie had a long you know an hour long video called listed under accessories and I feel like I got a lot of what that piece was about in like five minutes within the room where I didn't necessarily have to stay for the the full sixty minutes.
1: Let's talk. At, let's talk about Alfredo Jar because mm-hmm. I think that video is something that it's a video that a lot of people have talked about. In terms of the amount of time it takes to consume, it is, I, I think, twenty seconds. A little less onerous.
0: Yeah, it's only five minutes and twenty seconds.
1: Yeah. So, and just so that everybody knows, if you haven't heard or seen about this Alfredo jar video, it it uses uh, Black Lives Matter protest footage. It's all in black and white, and overhead when you sit in this room there is a large fan that begins to blow as you see footage of helicopters flying very low in the skies and doing sort of threatening things and so you feel it feels very palpable the noise the wind everything that is happening you there's a real sense of tension that is created now all of that said it has been criticized as being a little heavy-handed. Benjamin Sutton was on the art newspaper podcast, and he said that he felt like protest footage in general should not be used because it is such a potent form of documentation that it's really hard to kind of do anything with it. So he felt like the work was was unsuccessful just because of the, purely because of the medium. And I guess I wanted to get your thoughts on it because I, before I weighed in because I have my own thoughts.
0: <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, I mean, the first thing I want to say is that the, there were several of these kind of high powered fans that hang from the ceiling. And there's a, a warning that you go in that you, you might need some earplugs and The first thing it triggered that is completely different than what I experienced looking at the imagery on the screen and the memories and experiences it sort of evoked was going to see a bad sci-fi movie in a Ford DX theater where the chairs move, it sprays water at you, the wind kind of comes down. And that is meant to enhance or simulate some kind of real experience, that it's, that's a fictional science fiction movie. But the idea is that it's meant to sort of further transport you into this kind of space. And in the theater, it was just annoying and ridiculous, and it ruined that movie experience. I'm not going to say it did the same thing for a Jars piece, but what it made me really think about is that connection to a kind of fantasy, that there's he's creating this situation for that kind of ideal hypothetical audience who has never attended a protest, who has never experienced the kind of like a threat of physical violence. And in that case, it's really that the the helicopters kind of like wind rushing down on you, which is a very sort of threatening police presence to kind of just lower and put pressure literally on protesters. And it made me, it just was a little bit troubling in the sense that it was sort of like, what kind of like protest tourism is this? I didn't you know, and, and having some actual experience to draw on of going to protests where there are police either directly across the street from you, like way too many cops outnumbering the number of protesters, or just during the Black Lives Matter protests, marching with a few thousand people down to the police precinct and not being met by threatening violence, but definitely walls of cops that looked like if this situation had gone sideways, there could have been the potential for violence. And then also knowing a lot of protesters who were zip-tied and suffered nerve damage or, you know, really experienced physical trauma during the protests, I just didn't really take, JAR's piece wasn't that impactful for me because I have a real experience to compare it to. And I think the idea of just kind of adding wind to media that was probably widely shared on social media of the event didn't really do it for me. I mean, I, I don't think that means that the piece wasn't necessary because it does fill some of that gap that you've identified, which that there's not work that is really about the last two years or the, the experience of the Black Lives Matter protests within the pandemic, which was already a sort of challenge to kind of like throw out all of the precautions that people were taking to go gather with huge groups of people to protest another equally pressing problem. So. I wasn't particularly convinced, let's say, by Jar's piece. It just, I got a little wind in my hair and I saw some footage that was very familiar to me.
1: I want to add, though, that, and I think this is probably an important thing to add, that when you go into that room, you are locked in, the door closes. So you can't, basically, you can't get out because somebody has told you you can't get out, not because you're, not because you can't actually leave the room we're dealing with social conventions versus actually being locked into a room. But I felt like that was uh, an element that added uh, some power to the work. And I did feel, I feel differently than you. I will say that. Like, it's not that I don't want to, it's not that I, I don't see that point of view. I think it's like, I think, I think every part of your experience is like, that experience, of course, it's like this is is gonna feel like some sort of weird theater experience that is not particularly effective. I do think for people who haven't really experienced that, even a small amount of that is useful, and I also I guess I I try to think about just in general sometimes holding back the amount of not. I don't know how useful this is, but like holding back like my impulses to be like, oh, well, I know this isn't the real thing or like this is this pales in comparison to what the actual thing is. Well, yeah, it's art. It's not the same thing. It's not going to be the same thing. It didn't feel like entertainment to me. It felt like I was a little nervous. I have been to protests. I haven't ever felt threatened. So like, I think that is a difference. But, like, the big thing for me was like, if it's not, if this isn't here, then there's nothing. There's nothing to represent that. And I'd much rather have something that tries, at least.
0: Yeah. And I, again, I don't fault Jar for bringing that into the, the museum. But I do think, like, Ben Sutton, that critique of using footage that was widely circulated that people still can feel the same kind of repulsion or terror or looking at it on their phones. I mean, the way that people have stopped kind of instinctively sharing traumatic videos on social media, because we don't want to open our phones and see things that we're not prepared for, or at least emotionally or physically ready. And I think we've gone through so much of that, that that is also why Jar's piece wasn't particularly like effective for me because it was so familiar to the kinds of footage that had been so widely circulated that make us really aware that we want to change social conditions. You know, we'd like to actually see police reform as opposed to people talking about it and then not doing anything. Um, You
1: know, this reminds me, like one of the things that Jerry Salt said was that he felt like one of the omissions that it was the, the video of George Floyd's death. And like, that wasn't, that wasn't included. And then he was like, well, but there's good reasons for that. And like, one of the things I felt about like Jars piece was that it was mercifully tame, like compared to what we saw, like what we all went through. It was (laughs) like, I felt like I could re I could see that experience again, without having to completely relive it. And that honestly is really important in terms of healing because you can't constantly relive trauma.
0: Yeah. And I mean, I think the other thing is, I mean, could you imagine what the conversation would be if an artist, I don't care who the artist is, put that video of George Floyd being murdered in the Whitney Biennial and put their name on it? I, mean, said, I, just... artwork. <laughs> yeah. I mean, because I, I think there's, I suspect, That there are some other reasons why we we really aren't seeing so much kind of like directly art directly related to the um, death toll of the pandemic or protest related artwork, because I think there's a sort of awareness and a hesitancy about taking the kind of trauma and suffering of other people that are happening in the real world and then placing it into a kind of artistic frame and presenting it back to people because it doesn't completely get separated from these other operations of like an artist's career, the potential for profit on that. And whether that is in the form of institutional support and fees or like sales in the market, it it centers it on a kind of individual. And I mean, Jar's statement, he has to sort of qualify what he's doing by saying he had similar experiences in Pinochet's Chile, where he was witnessing fascism and kind of making this comparison between the Black Lives Matter protests and his experiences there, which qualifies to some degree his use of that footage. And I just think there's a lot of artists who are not necessarily willing to do that because there is this element of kind of extracting something from the public domain or experience that so many people have experienced and then sort of reprocessing it. And if there is a real kind of like subjective interpretation that adds to and changes our understanding of that experience or how the artist experienced it, I think that that becomes a much more sort of valid way of presenting it. So unaltered documentary footage doesn't do a lot of that. You know, like putting wind in your hair and locking the door, yes, that starts to kind of like get to that feeling of like, you might be kind of trapped, but like maybe there's not a way out of this. I guess I was also just thinking about it of like simulating vulnerability that that you can... experience if you're out on the streets and confronted with cops, with kettling and batons and tear gas. I mean, it's a different order of experience, but I do think that that's maybe part of the reason why we don't see as much of work that is sort of directly related to the events.
1: I mean, certainly that's Like, that's the case. And I I was thinking about, I think there was a Whitney, another Whitney scandal, like when they What was it? There was um, an exhibition that had been scheduled that included protest signs that had been made that they had purchased at auction, but there was no artist
0: fees associated with that. It's it's even a little weirder than that. They were buying benefit editions made by artists. Benefit editions, that's Over right. Black Lives Matter, at very low prices, the same prices that you and I might pay <laughs> for $150 piece the Whitney swooping in and buying these things up when maybe there was a responsibility, I think, for them to maybe make greater donations. But then they were very quick to want to organize that into a show without necessarily reaching out to any of the artists, any of the artists. Yeah. I I mean, and I, I spoke to some artists who had been approached about that show and had legitimate concerns and weren't sure they were going to do it. And some of those artists were only contacted because they were already in contact with the Whitney and they kind of knew what might be up and expressed concerns that I think might've helped steer the Whitney away from just putting that show up and ending up with another kind of morass on their hands. But yeah, yeah. So I, I sorry to interrupt. Uh, no,
1: that is exactly, no. I actually needed you to do that because I have forgotten some of the details around that particular, that particular Whitney scandal of which there seemed to be no shortage. But, uh, you know, on the other hand, it's not like these other museums aren't doing the same thing. Like the new museum was ported up the same way that the, that the Whitney was. They weren't any different.
0: So yeah, that doesn't make it. Right. I mean, I think that's an indictment of the way that one of the criticisms of like the Whitney or the New Museum, when they do these political shows, those politics and their statements and the representations don't align with the way the museums actually operate, whether union busting and retaliation at the New Museum or tense contract negotiations with the current Whitney staff, there is this disconnect. And I think it's making it increasingly difficult for the Whitney to kind of say and include certain kinds of artwork if the structure of the museum and its actions don't match that work. So that that might also be a little bit of like contribute to the institution's, you know, sort of unwillingness to take on, say, that kind of radical gesture of Dred Scott. Right.
1: Is there any other work that we feel kind of needs discussion.
0: Yeah. I mean, I was sort of curious what, what else, because within the sort of dialectical conversations, Rick Lowe or hers photographs, I mean, I did, there was a lot of quiet kind of more modest experiences. Cause I, 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 another thing that I was thinking about with the show itself is its sort of relationship to scale and whether it's the scale of the institution of the biennial, which we we've sort of, talked around a little bit that there's like a culture in the art world of like just already wanting to dislike a biennial before it even happens. (laughs) Yeah. Just conditioned like, uh, not another biennial because one, they're trying to kind of capture a coherent overview of contemporary art world that in some cases has already like passed it by or it's incapable of doing like the way you've talked about trying to represent the pandemic or black lives matter. It's, they're not very good at it certainly NFTs or Lady Phoenix's work seems like it's almost beyond the institution to be able to do. But then the scale. Yeah, of but it-
1: like, I think that's the thing that seems crazy to me, like, because if Christie's can handle Lady Phoenix, surely, surely the Whitney can figure it out.
0: Uh, I would say that the market has something to do with how Fast Christie's got involved in some of (laughs) this stuff because, you know, the NFT market was sort of non-existent a year and a half ago and now is, you know, surpassing the traditional market, uh, at least in terms of its like crazy conceptual market cap. But, you know, like part of that dislike of the Whitney Biennial is, is also like it's kind of laced with like envy of the artists who are present in it because of the institutional capital that is sort of afforded artists. Like if you make it into the biennial, you're going to have a career and all of these things that sort of come with uh, the inclusion in the biennial, which on the other hand, makes it really great to see so many BIPOC and sort of underrepresented artists in the show, which amazingly wasn't even really a point of discussion with this biennial. It was just, this is how it is. The last one, they're like, this is the first Whitney biennial with more than, where more, more than half of the artists are artists of color. In this case, they're just like, okay, we don't have to foreground what this is by saying that. But, you know, like, I feel like there's the sort of big themes and things in the show, and that includes a lot of large-scale works that sort of demand a lot of attention. And, like, formally, I was thinking about that still between Rick Lowe's work and hers, photographs of this kind of, like, if they're asking us to consider these sort of more formal propositions, what does scale mean to work? What does it mean to make a giant, painting. I tend to think of like Julian Schnabel in a bathrobe painting on his roof with a broom because the paintings are too big to be made in the studio, which have a lot to do with his ego or kind of like masculine attitudes and perspectives and traditions. I was talking with a student at SVA and she said someone told her that she needed to make the paintings more bold and declarative and basically make them bigger. And she's like, I'm just not interested in that. (laughs) I thought, that is true. Like there are, we read things into and understand things as simple as scale in relation to what's being sort of communicate, communicated through the work, whether it's about ambition or relative importance. Like did Alex, did Alex de Corte really need to build a giant cube to show us that video? Or is it like, this is serious. Like you must take this work. It's important, even if it's playful and somewhat comic. So what I what I don't want to lose sight of, and maybe you have some other works that kind of may cut through that for you, but I feel like I, I did see a number of works that were smaller scale or just not an hour and a half long that I could sort of take in. And not all of it was great. You know, like there was maybe a few things that I thought were a little unfortunate. Like, I don't know, were there any any things that you feel like you wanted to kind of introduce into the discussion? because I have a little sure. bit of
1: a- well I mean there were I, there's sort of a couple of things I think like for me Lucy Raven's video of like diminish demolition of wall was something that stood out for me and I know that you said that that was something that was useful or not useful but like something that that you would really enjoy it as well and like mm-hmm. what happens paperwork. what happens in that particular piece it's a like very large screen that's like set against like all windows in uh, the Whitney Biennial. So you can see the the rooftop, but she's filmed like in an explosive range in New Mexico. So she shoots like still so landscapes, they're head on. And then like every once in a while, there'll be like this sudden sound of an explosive. And that's like literally the subject of the entire film. And then afterwards, what you see is this kind of like roll of color Move over the surface of the film like a ripple in the water. It's like it's disruptive, but a little bit, it's almost subtle. And you know, the film has been fundamentally altered in some way, but you're not sure how. And I felt like that was a really good metaphor for like a lot of the broken things in the world due to really jarring violence. Like we're still kind of figuring out how to articulate the full impact of all of the things that have happened. And so this, this piece, like, I think it also spoke to technology and how we're a little unsure of how technology is influencing and changing the world, I think. I'm just trying to come, the name of the artist who did the, let me see my
0: notes. Shoo. Because there were also the kind of like AI collaborative paintings on aluminum on the sixth floor where there was also a video piece installed above it, you know, sort of like where the artist was collaborating with AI programs and sort of thinking about how machines see, but maybe that's a different work.
1: It's Daniel Joseph Martinez, I think.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah. That was those works. Wang Shi's work and Daniel Joseph Martinez's work were sort of paired fairly close together. And I yeah. got for some discussion because they are sort of about a kind of idea of futurity. Although Daniel's work does deal with the past, but Daniel Joseph Martinez is also the artist who did that series. I can't ever imagine being white. Yes. Right. And then I just was struck where he's now imagining whiteness sort of writ large positioning himself as like one of the engineers from Ridley Scott's film, Prometheus, which if you haven't seen the film are like these like nine foot tall aliens that are alabaster white that look like they're based on classical sculpture. And I mean, to inhabit that kind of body, which has such a frightening narrative premise that it's like, no, we're not descended from Africa. We're actually descended from white space aliens that created us here. I mean, it's really weird. I thought his work was some of the strangest, almost kind of like overproduced work in the show. But yeah, I I don't know. That was... that was an interesting series of photographs. I felt
1: like it was kind of bleak, quite honestly, like, because (laughs) the works themselves, you know, they're like anti, they're anti heroes, like Frankenstein, Count Dracula, like the alien bounty hunter from X-Files. And like, those are, those are the different people he's kind of inhabited. And I think like all of those characters, like they're dealing with, the consequences of innovation, right? And they all seem to distill into this kind of, for lack of a better word, like badness.
0: I don't think you're wrong at all because if we just take one step to like what the tech world looks like, it is largely white men and men in general. It's got a huge gender problem. I mean, I was definitely thinking about Martinez's previous work and his relationship and critique of whiteness. So I could not unsee these characters as being coming from these kind of, Monsters created by like sort of white imagination.
1: Yeah, so I think like there there's all of that, but the I think part of the part of the reason they feel so sad to me is like there's no tension in them, like and they're actually they're actually kind of boring to look at, like there's like super long film strip type of installation, and there's like gauze in front of it, so it's almost as if they're like like you peel back the skin that has been operated on and you see these like monstrous faces but the damage is done like you're just seeing like everything is like a fait accompli it's done and so there's a level of cynicism to the work that like makes me I understand why somebody would get there but it's like it's so sad
0: it is sad I mean but you know I think one of the things that made me think about it a little bit differently was that you know Translating it back into a kind of like scale of spectacle, and mm-hmm. that it's like it has yeah. to be big, it has to be slick, it has to you know, and it doesn't quite get there in every case in terms of like the production. Yeah, not like Alex Decorte's video. That thing seems like somebody spent a million bucks on makeup alone. <laughs> How did this? I mean,
1: be- that's his like trademark style too, uh, though, right? Like, uh,
0: yeah, but I mean, there's a, a kind of like playfulness sometimes with Alex's work that maybe doesn't always require that level of production. But that one, there's like a kind of you could just see the budget in motion where I didn't really sense that with Daniel's work, like it was aspiring to get there on some level. And I did find it sad, but also mostly because of the kind of histories and it's the way it was sort of going back into these myths of of like a post-human identity that whether they're historical imaginations of like a post-human, it it usually creates these monsters. And I think those are sort of about the imaginations that are are doing the, the kind of fictive creating. And so to sort of embody that, I mean, I just thought it was an interesting reversal of this idea of like, well, I can't, imagine ever being white, but if I did, it would look like this. And it was kind of (laughs) sad, you know, like it succeeds on that level because I mean, one of the, one of the kind of trippy things was you've got that layer of scrim that sort of like separates, uh, covers the photos and you you know, they're not very close to the photos. You walk around it and you have six feet between you and that scrim and the photos. So people are in there looking at these and there's these interesting little wall texts that describe each one. But when you come, when you turn that corner, uh, for Wang Shoes Xu, piece, what I noticed, there's like six people laying on these kind of padded benches, just staring up at the kind of generative art abstraction, which looks like a technological sea floor bed or something, right? I don't know, but people are just kind of like- it,
1: There is a out. kind of like beanbag, like yeah. art fair flavor to it, like where this is like the media lounge and this is what's- Yeah, and I know, just projected
0: I thought there was something sort of gratifying about just seeing the museum goers kind of like flat on their backs, entranced by this thing that is really of, I I don't know what it was about. What struck me is he had these aluminum paintings next to it, though, that were like oil on aluminum. And they looked kind of sick to me, not in a, they looked sick like H.P. Lovecraft's description of like the color of outer space, where there's something kind of frightening about the collaboration with the um, AI and the artists to make these kind of paintings that just look so unnatural. I remember, you know, Jen was like, oh, I think those things are sort of great. And I'm like, I find them kind of vaguely unsettling and a little bit terrifying because I, I don't, I don't trust this collaboration with the AI. I don't trust the people that program the AI. I don't love the idea that there's like concerted efforts to just remove human subjectivity and artists from... Art making. And I don't know, those that was an interesting like pairing for me in the show, again, where you have this relationship between abstraction and then Daniel Martinez is like very clear figurative photography. So those, that was a memorable kind of like pairing. <laughs> Maybe not great, but
1: <laughs> yeah, it's sort of, a, it, it reminds me of something you pulled out from Jason Ferrargo's critique of the Venice biennale i guess that ran in the new york times about a week ago where he was talking mostly about how depressing he found most of the artwork in the venice biennale and
0: yeah he he he, he had this kind of lament at the end that art had just become a kind of communications system for like directly communicating ideas to people or something
1: Yeah. And to me, like, I felt like that was coming from, you know, I don't know if this is the case, but like, to me, I read that as, as as being something that came directly from the influence of like the tech world and how they want us to like, think about art, like as purely support for like some software that (laughs) that can make your life easy or something like that. Like that's, that's the extent of like how we can think about what creative life means now.
0: Oh, I guess I read it. That much of the artwork was trying to relay something or that like we just have to kind of read it a certain way. And that has to be a sort of correct reading of that work and the artist's intention. And also maybe a little bit of a dig at work that is sort of like trying to communicate a kind of political intention. And I just thought it was unfortunate to kind of lump it, throw communication under the bus in that way because. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Art, art is a communicative device, whether it's communicating affective emotional content or experiences or didactic politics, whatever it is, I think art is a communications tool. But I think you probably have, I, I wouldn't disagree with your interpretation of what Farrago was saying there. I just I also disagreed with his notion that like, you could separate Simone Le's sculpture from the painstaking kind of transformation of the classical colonialist federalist architecture of the u.s pavilion into sort of thatched african hut like with but he barely
1: touched on that at all like it was actually a thread on network where you pulled that out like he's i mean that critique was all but absent
0: yeah i mean he basically said well the artwork still has to work by work on its own work on its own which i just don't i wouldn't separate those two things right because it just supposes that those works like it one, it's not an installation, that an that intervention isn't going to kind of help inform how you interpret the work, and that the work really its future is just like in a neutral museum somewhere or a collector's home. And that's for me is what makes um an exhibition an exhibition.
1: I did I do feel like that brings up sort of something that I like had come up in various places, but it's it, like I kept thinking when I was going through the the Whitney biennial about like where somebody like Cornelia Parker fits into this world. Because like, I think she's somebody who is very famous, like very, she's very well known for creating installations that are really reliant on you, the viewer understanding a material history. So maybe she's like using the mud from like Sigmund Freud's garden and like exploding it and like that, is part of how you're supposed to understand the work and how it communicates meaning. And like Jason Ferrargo's point of view is like, well, great, but the work still has to communicate on its own. And I feel like we maybe are moving to a point where that is, that feels like a little, like a slightly antiquated, I think.
0: Yeah. I, I think it's an antiquated view. I mean, especially considering artists like Don Vo, who, the work, if you didn't understand that it's a real artifact that was bought off eBay from a presidential administration, you wouldn't be able to get it, or, or the work of Cameron Rowland and understanding that that desk you're looking at was produced by prison labor and sold can only be sold to nonprofit entities of which, like artist space is one. I would say that after conceptual art <laughs> 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 we, we have to be able to take into consideration the fullness of, of an artwork and where the materials come from and their histories. I mean, that is, I, think, I
1: mean, I think it's what art is yeah. like, that's what
0: contemporary
1: art is. So you yeah. so the guess, demand for that kind of purity is really. Yeah. Kind of I think that weird. that's a kind of
0: old school kind of formalist first kind of arts for art's sake way of wanting to sort of say, I, I don't need all of that knowledge and history for me to have an experience with the work. And it's like, okay, you can do that, but it may be re- is sort of very incomplete because you maybe don't understand these things. And if that's the way you want to look at and experience artwork, it's maybe going to be a little bit dis- unsatisfying in certain cases. I feel like there was one of the things in this particular show is they finally offered translations of the wall texts in, into Spanish. Right. Where you get this doubling, right? On one hand, one thing that does, though, is it also sort of like doubles up the importance of the wall texts. It's like on one hand, like you really we realize how important these wall texts are to accessing what this work is about so that we're going to translate it into Spanish. And so we want to increase accessibility to the knowledge that might help you understand this work. But in some cases, I mean, you know, that's where there's sort of clear Gaps maybe revealed between the language and materials used in a work and what it's trying to connect to. Like, I took a photograph of like Sai Gavin's abstract painting, and it was mostly this kind of like abstract expressionist mark making, but it didn't connect me to the wall text, which said they were allegories for the lockdown. And I was like, well, I've made paintings during the lockdown too. <laughs> I mean, a lot of people did, and yet I, I don't find. I can't see a connection in the materials and the way of working to this sort of allegory for the lockdown. And I, I felt like there, that's, there's, there's claims made about works. There's things that you need to know about artworks that can help you understand them. And there's a difference between those two things. And so some of the wall texts in the show, you know, I'd read them and be like, I don't necessarily see the sort of claims made about the work in the artwork itself. But like there was one pairing, and I don't know if you had you had any thoughts about the artist's sculpture, but look, Rebecca Belmore had a kind of saint-like figure wrapped in a sleeping bag surrounded by bullet casings that are all pointing at this sort of figure, which I was like, what does this first say about like unhoused people? Is this sort of a comment on vulnerability? But, you know, you have all these shiny metal bullet casings and they're right in the same room as Guadalupe Rosale's photographs of her home in East Los Angeles, which are also in shiny metal frames. And I couldn't disconnect the bullets from the metal frames. And, you know, in Rosale's uh, wall text, it was saying that, of course, the, the photographs are, there's an effort to kind of honor the uh, dead in the photographs. And at the same time, the work is potentially about Rosale's sense of community, which includes intimate, warm, haunting, and inviting memories. But when I'm looking at those photos next to like this figure wrapped in a sleeping bag with bullets around it, I'm not thinking about inviting warm or haunting. I'm only thinking about this kind of violence and potential for violence directed at very vulnerable people. And that really made that work a pair that I couldn't separate in some way. And that's where I was, you know, sort of like reading the wall text sort of closely trying to figure out what were the curators sort of thinking about this? Because I, I do think that sort of overdetermined maybe what Rosale's photographs could have been about if I hadn't seen them next to like a carpet of bullets.
1: I mean, it's really hard to like talk about that without knowing the exact process that they go through to write those wall texts because... I mean, I would assume and hope that they're written, maybe not in collaboration with, but at least uh, they are approved by the artists themselves before they go anywhere. So, and normally if I'm writing any kind of text, I'm talking to the artists to find out what it's about. Like, it's not just me, like giving my interpretation, like, well, that's like, that's my job as a critic, but it's not a job, like, that's not the job of the curator.
0: So. Yeah, I mean, Rosales' wall text felt very much like they had spoken with the artist and we're taking it from the artist's statement about what these photographs were trying to convey. I didn't spend a lot of time reading Rebecca Belmore's piece because it was much more sort of like a curatorial statement about what the work was intending to do. But I just, I felt like Belmore's piece was maybe the most unfortunate work in the entire show just by itself. Like it just was like, this is not good art. Right. And I felt like that spread out, unfortunately, and sort of maybe... Well, it had a pretty big to... footprint. Yeah, it just didn't have a great impact on Guadalupe's photographs for me. I think one of the most sort of like head-scratching inclusions, though, was walking into the fifth floor, seeing like an installation made of scaffolding and pipes, and there's all these signs of manual labor. And I'm like, ooh, who's this artist? And I walk over and it's like, Jason Rhodes. And I'm like, why is Jason Rhodes in this exhibition, I'm ch- I, like, I was trying to find something, some reason for his inclusion because I didn't sense that like his scatter clusterfuck aesthetic had like a big impact on anything else.
1: Anything, Yeah. Well, and,
0: I mean, I guess I just felt like, man, that, that one maybe might've been like a conversation between Werner and the curators. Like if you want these artists or you got to put Jason Rhodes in the show because I just really couldn't, you know, I, I have to imagine that there are a hundred artists making work dealing with labor and precarity of labor that would have been a better inclusion than Jason Rhodes in the exhibition. So I just, I was like, there's something else going on here that like, why, why Jason? Why now? And it's not. It's funny because I saw
1: that work and I was like, sort of scratching my head. I was like, is this a different Jason Rhodes? Because I can't figure out like why this person is included.
0: <laughs> in
1: any event, I think we should probably wrap up because uh, we are basically on brand, closing in on close to two hours for our podcast. But of course, this one is a really important one because we had all of those great announcements at the beginning and the Whitney Biennial to talk about, which we, of course, have tons to talk about and it is we're not sure what the next episode is going to be but i can promise you that we are going to be planning it after we wrap this one
0: absolutely well it's great to talk about the whitney with you patty and uh likewise okay
1: we will talk to you all soon
0: yeah